0: in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve the one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Hopefully, um, hope you, this, uh, the handheld will work today. And when, when they bought the, um, the microphones that go on the head, they didn't realize that if you have a small head and hair, it's a nightmare. And it fell off my head three times last time, and I thought, I'm not going through that again. So, um, so hopefully this will be all right. So um, good morning, everyone. It's really lovely to see you um, here this morning. Um, we are getting towards the end of Matthew's Gospel. And for those of you who have been with us um, through this term You'll have been um, walking with us as we've walked through Matthew, as he's been revealing Jesus to us. And we're getting right to the very end. And this passage about this woman is one of those passages that I thought I'd always love to preach on this beautiful passage. Um, And also for the reason that I have a very beautiful alabaster vase that I was meant to bring with me this morning. And I'm blaming the heat, or trying to get four teenagers out of bed, and I've completely forgotten. So you have to imagine it. Uh, we bought this alabaster jar um, when we were in Egypt on our sort of our last precious holiday pre-children. And we went to a factory where they were mining the alabaster and creating it into just beautiful things. And we bought this vase. They said it was very precious and very um, uh, very delicate. So they wrapped it up really, really carefully. But of course, they forgot to wrap the base. And when we arrived home after our flight and unwrapped it, the base was just in pieces. And John, being the patient man that he is, he spent hours putting together this base of this alabaster jar, grinding up some of the alabaster to try and fill all the cracks. And it looks amazing. And it's probably a good job that I haven't bought it because I'm actually quite clumsy and I'm always really nervous when I pick it up. Um, But it also reminds me that smashing the head off an alabaster jar is not that difficult. Um, So that's my picture sometimes when I think about this story. And I've got four quick thoughts at the beginning of the passage and then we're going to look in the passage a bit more detail. Um, But firstly, you might know that the passage is told in other Gospels. Um, and in other Gospels, the woman is given an identity. In some Gospels, she is known as Mary, the, um, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Um, in other stories, she's named as a prostitute, which is obviously quite a difference. Um, in some stories, she anoints his feet. In Matthew, she anoints his head. And the location is also different. I don't think I did have to do a bit of reading, um, but whatever the explanation, the point is for Matthew is... Who this woman was, where, she, where this happened, that's not the important thing. What she did and the timing of the act is really important for Matthew, and that's what we're going to look at. So in Matthew, we have an unnamed woman anointing Jesus' head in the home of Simon the leper, who is probably somebody who Jesus may have healed from leprosy because if he had active leprosy, he wouldn't have been part of the community. So that's the first point, this woman has no identity in this story. But secondly, in Mark and John's Gospels, they explain that the amount of perfume was about a year's worth of wages. That's a lot of perfume and a lot of money. Thirdly, Jesus' female followers. Jesus had a remarkable attitude towards women, and this woman is absolutely no exception. Jesus honors her, And Matthew includes what she did at a really significant point of his gospel. And it was to be read forever. And if you read through these last chapters of Matthew, you'll notice that it's the female disciples who stay with him. One of his best friends betrays him, another denies him, and all the rest literally just run away. Whereas this woman anoints him. Others stay by the cross and others go to the tomb. And in a culture where women were less than second-class citizens, they risked everything with these acts. And Jesus allowed and he encouraged women to be a part of, their mission, of his mission in their rightful place with men in his kingdom. And in our culture, we might miss these snippets of information because it's so different. But in a culture like that, the fact that Matthew kept throwing these little bits of information about women had a really huge significance. So that's female followers. And then fourthly, quickly, this passage is not really about the poor. And it's not God belittling the plight of the poor either. So we know from the Old Testament that God was passionate about the poor and the vulnerable and passionate about us being responsible um, and treating them well. And we know in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus talked a lot about acts of kindness of self-sacrifice, of caring for the poor and vulnerable, and that this should be our priority as well. So, we know that Jesus doesn't mean we shouldn't look after the poor. But why does he allow a whole year's worth of perfume to be poured all over his head? This passage is set right at the beginning of the last three chapters of Matthew's story, and I think it's there for a reason. And we've journeyed through the last few weeks uh, with Jesus through sort of the hills and valleys um, as we've walked with him and we've learned about his teaching and his healing. And as he's been walking with his disciples, trying to get them to understand um, what the kingdom of God is really all about, which is very different to their own agendas. We've observed the growing hatred of the leaders. And it's now like we're standing in the final bit, the foothills of the final ascent and we're going to start traveling up the, up the mountain towards the cross. And this week, if you can, I would just really encourage you to grab a coffee, sit down for half an hour, an hour, and just read these last few chapters of Matthew, just to sort of absorb the enormity of um, the last week of Jesus' life. And this beautiful story of the woman... It's sandwiched in between, very neatly sandwiched in between, two very dark stories. The plotting of the authorities and the betrayal of one of Jesus' closest friends. So why is her story placed here at this point in the gospel? And I think it's because Matthew wants the act of Jesus to be like a signpost. She wants this act of of this woman to be like a signpost pointing us up the mountain, pointing us towards the cross and this woman's story sets the scene for the whole of the passion narrative as we start to think about the cross. It's often a fact that in our culture we don't like being out of control. We like to be in control of our lives, in control of our surroundings and if we really admit it probably a little bit in control of others as well. We often use the term control freak, and if we see somebody doing something out of control, perhaps a little bit like this woman's rather crazy act here, it can make us feel just a bit uncomfortable. And in this passage, we see um, images of three groups of people who don't seem to be able to cope with this woman's type of passionate response to Jesus. And we see in them a desire to control Jesus a desire to keep God doing things to their own agendas instead. So if you turn to the passage, if you look back at uh, Matthew 26, verse 1, or verse 3, the chief priests, the elders, the high priests, the leaders of the people, and we've seen throughout Matthew a real growing hostility of them towards Jesus. Jesus was constantly asking them questions. He was constantly challenging challenging their authority, their power, their religious way of life. But their annoyance at his presence has sort of really flipped. And you see here, there's now a real um, anger and there's a real desire to get rid of him. Jesus was just a bit too uncomfortable for them. And their way of trying to control the situation was to try and get rid of Jesus, which is quite an extreme action to take. And then if you look at verse 14, Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends. And when Jesus didn't provide what Judas wanted, Judas gave up on him. He went off to the leaders of the people to offer to betray his, one of his best friends. Perhaps Jesus, perhaps Judas decided that Jesus was a disappointment to him. Perhaps not the kind of saviour that he'd expected, Maybe it was material prosperity he was after. We know he was the keeper of the purse, of the disciples' money, and one of the Gospels tells us that he would steal from the purse. So maybe it was material prosperity. Perhaps he'd just grown uncomfortable with the teaching that Jesus was giving. Perhaps he was expecting a a triumphant military hero. And here was Jesus talking about loving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you. Perhaps Judas thought there was a risk to him losing his life, and he wasn't prepared to follow someone who demanded that from him. And so Judas decided to try and control the situation himself by betraying one of his best friends to his enemies, and of course, another really extreme action. Now, you may not find that you identify with the chief priest or Judas, because they're quite extreme reactions, but what about the disciples here? If you look at what they say in verse 8, why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, I'd like to ask you honestly how many of you have a little bit of sympathy for the disciples? I think I do. Um, here they are, surely standing up for the right thing the plight of the poor, which Jesus is always going on about. But they were critical. And actually, Jesus supports what the woman was doing, so perhaps she was doing the right thing, and there was something in their hearts that wasn't right. They didn't understand what was about to happen, even though Jesus had been trying to explain it for months. He had been trying to warn them about the cross. And all that they could see was expensive perfume dripping all over the floor in front of them. They were horrified that so much money had been wasted. And it's just another time when what the disciples saw in their traditional and very conventional way of thinking, it was completely out of step with Jesus. And I think Jesus loved to shock them, and I think he does here. And his response does, doesn't it? They didn't understand what was about to happen or why the cross needed to happen. And I think this is where I'm a little bit challenged, because sometimes I'm a bit like the disciples. I don't always understand God's ways I don't always understand God's priorities and I think sometimes like the disciples I'm a bit prone to criticize and judge others perhaps when I'm uncomfortable seeing passionate displays towards God or perhaps when someone is putting money towards something you know extravagantly and I wonder why or when I see a bit, I'm a bit jealous when I see someone walking really closely with Jesus just like I would be Perhaps a little bit like the disciples felt that night as they watched this woman. So these three groups of people, the chief priest, Judas, and the disciples, perhaps they thought they were in control, perhaps they wanted to be in control, but actually God was in control. We read in verse 1 and 2 when Jesus says, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to to be crucified. God was in control here. This was God's act and God's timing. The cross wasn't coming as a surprise to Jesus. He wasn't a helpless victim, but he was fully in control of events. And he'd been warning the disciples for a long time, and the Old Testament was full of prophecies about what was about to happen. And then you have this woman. And amazingly, she seemed to get it she seemed to understand you don't see any attempt to try and change the situation or any chance or any attempt to control jesus or change his mind it's like she was joining in with what was about to happen she seemed to understand the significance of this moment and she acts appropriately and in her love for jesus There's this extravagant act of really needless beauty. And in contrast to all the men, this woman gives what she can offer. She knows that they'll always have the poor with them, but she seems to get that there'll be no other point in history like this moment now. So Matthew shows us this enormous contrast of the devotion of the woman with the hostility of the priests, the treachery of Judas, and the critical nature of the disciples. These were leaders who should have been leading God's people, and these were best friends of Jesus who had spent three years with the Son of God. They should have got what was about to happen. But they're left standing and watching as this woman pours oil over Jesus' head as a sacrificial offering. And what strikes me is that she just didn't do a little drop. Like Richard does, if he sometimes gets the oil out when he's praying, he might just pop a drop on your head. She broke the jar. I just want you to imagine, just imagine if Richard turned up with a huge, big jar of oil, and he smashed it. And he poured it all over your head while he's praying for you. And you stand there dripping, and it's pouring on the floor, and you're slightly embarrassed, and everyone around you is watching. You think you'd be pretty shocked, and I think others would probably be quite shocked, too. And this woman pours a year's worth of oil all over Jesus, all over his head, dripping down onto his feet, so that Simon's home probably reeked of the stuff for days, weeks, maybe even months. And as the family were clearing up, it would remind them of that evening and of what was about to come. And why the head? Well, oil poured in the head in the Old Testament was a sign, and it was a sign of anointing for kings and priests to mark them out. So this woman's act, it's more than a love offering. Whether she understood the full significance of what she was doing, her spontaneous act of love and loyalty towards Jesus was a sign. It's like she was preparing for the next bit of the story. She was helping to prepare Jesus for the cross, pointing to him as king and priest, the one who had been promised, the one who is going to rescue God's people to be their leader, to be the perfect king and priest for them. And why so much oil? Wouldn't a tiny drop suffice? But what would a drop have said? People would hardly have noticed the act or the smell or the mess. And maybe what this woman is trying to tell us, that we need to notice Jesus And that Jesus is worth pouring a year's worth of wages out on tea. But of course the extravagance of this woman's act is nothing in comparison to the price of God's love for us. The death of his son on the cross. What is a jar of perfume, even a really expensive jar of perfume, compared to the giving of a life? To the life of the son of God for the world. But Jesus accepts her worship. And he commends it as an act for us to follow. And so, 2,000 years on, we still read about this woman as a model of an act of sacrifice. And this woman's sacrificial act is really not very comfortable. It sort of makes us ask questions, it asks us challenging questions. And I think the biggest question is how much is Jesus worth? How much is Jesus worth? When we follow someone, we want to know that they're worth following. So how much is Jesus worth? How much is he worth following? When we follow Jesus, it might cost us something. And this may be what Judas was afraid of. This woman was prepared to give the most costly thing she had on earth, but Judas wasn't. In our worship of Jesus the choices we make may mean that we earn less. We may disagree with the values of our workplace or even our neighborhood or even our families. We may have to make difficult choices about what we stand up for. If our children, particularly our teenagers, have faith, it might make them stand out from the crowd, possibly far more than when we were younger. They have to be prepared to be different. Following Jesus may cost different values, Different, uh, different views and different speech. But actually, is Jesus worth following? Is, it, is he worth being countercultural for? Sometimes we can feel very alone in that, and this woman may have felt really alone that night, particularly when the disciples, Jesus' friends, started criticizing her. She may have been aware of the Jewish leaders turning against Jesus, and and now the disciples were also questioning her act of devotion. But what did Jesus say? He said, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And Jesus notices when we stand up for him. He notices when we make a decision which may cost our popularity, our income, our family, our friends. And he stands by us and he tells us that we are doing a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing in putting him first, in recognizing that he is the one that we follow, in understanding that the way of the cross brings life, that he is worth everything. And if we start to be captivated by Jesus and by the cross, as this woman was, it will lead to adoration and extravagance. But it's out of our love for God that everything else flows. Generosity comes out of our love for Jesus. And it has to be this way around in this order. And like this woman, we have to remember what is of first importance. And she demonstrated what is the greatest thing. Now, whenever I preach, Jen always seems to come up beforehand and give a wonderful example that I can then use in my sermon of sacrificial love. And actually, even at the age of eight, Jen sort of understood that God was asking for something that actually cost her something. It cost her her pocket money. It cost her everything she had as an eight-year-old. And God used that tiny little amount and turned it into something incredibly beautiful. And for this woman, she wasn't ignoring Jesus' command to love others. She wasn't ignoring Jesus' command to love the poor. But she knew that her response to Jesus was the first thing and was going to be costly. And so she poured out the most precious thing she had, and she was choosing the greatest thing. She was pointing to the cross and telling the world that Jesus is worth everything. So as we finish, as we've looked through Matthew for these last few weeks, he has been continually challenging us, I think, to live a life that matters to make choices that make a difference. And I mentioned earlier about feeling uncomfortable when we see something that challenges us, like this woman's devotion, and I don't think God necessarily always wants us to be comfortable. The Spirit of God challenges us to live differently from the world around us, to live on the edge, stepping out of our comfort zones, because the kingdom of God isn't like the kingdom of the world around us. It's where those who serve are blessed, where those who fight for the vulnerable and those who pour out extravagant love for God stand out in the world. Because like this woman, when we're devoted to God and we pour out that devotion, we will stand out and be noticed. And we may not always accept it. We may not always understand everything. A little bit like this woman, I don't think she fully understood her act. But just like God used this woman's act like he used Jen's pocket money. He can use our acts of devotion and our gifts, even if we haven't got our theology in precise order, even if we're trying to still work out what we believe. But the most important thing is knowing the most important thing, that Jesus is first, that Jesus is worth everything. So just as we come back together and um, we sing together, I just want us to spend a few moments of quiet, and then also as we sing, it would be great to, if we think about these things together. How much is Jesus worth? How much is Jesus worth to you? When you look at this woman's example, how much am I prepared to sacrifice for God? So let's just take a few moments of quiet to think those through those things together. Father, this woman's act challenges us, um, unsettles us, makes us ask questions. How much are you worth, Jesus? How much are you worth to me, truly? How much am I prepared to sacrifice in life for you? How much am I prepared to stand out from the crowd and be different? How much am I prepared to give up? Father, I pray that you'd help us to fall in love with you just a little bit more this morning. Help us to see the magnitude of the events of the cross, but of your life and your love for us, Jesus. Help us to understand that incredible, incredible gift of love that you poured out on the cross for us.
0: Amen.